Good morning again, folks. Here we are. Good Friday. Uh, I don't know if you're one of those people who have always kind of asked the question, why do we call it Good Friday? What What's so good about this day in the Christian calendar? Uh, and to be fair, it does feel a wee bit um, strange. It does go against the grain, calling the day in which someone uh, we celebrate dying is a good day. But it's called Good Friday, not because we enjoy the violence or the pain that he suffered. We don't revel in his death. We revel in the life that comes out of this death. We celebrate because Jesus Christ took our place. He died and in doing so gives us life. And to be honest with you, unless you come at it from the angle of substitutionary atonement, that Jesus took our place, there's nothing good that comes out of this death. But for me, I see the cross, I see an innocent man punished because I'm the one who's guilty. I see the Lion of Judah slaughtered like a lamb. I see the Pharisees, how they thought that this is a premeditated murder. But you look at scripture and you see that this is predestined sacrifice. And it was all done because God loved me, that he loves you as well. Now, unless you come to the cross with this understanding that all this happened to justify us, to make us right before God, to take away our sin by giving it to Christ and that he became our sin, that we might become children of God. Unless you come to the cross with this understanding that he has died for us, you'll only ever see the cross as something that took someone's life. But I see it as my saviour laying down his life for me. Death was their goal, but life is the outcome. And though the death was one of well, death for one comes to life for many. God takes our expressions of hate and makes it the centerpiece of hope. The greatest demonstration of love mankind has ever witnessed. It's a place where we can bring our, our sins and exchange them for righteousness. Where we can lay down our burdens and pick up freedom. Where we can come broken and leave restored. Satan thought it would be the end, but it was only the beginning. What should have been a bad day becomes a great day. And it would seem that God can take the worst of us. And use it to bring out the best of himself. That's why we call today Good Friday. Now, as you know by now, my habit is to work through a text and pause along the way and kind of chat through the verses. This morning, I want us to frame the study slightly differently. As we come to the cross, I want to base everything around one verse and then kind of just jump around from there. It's in Luke 23, verse 33, and it says, When they came to the place that they called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on the left. I just want to pick up on that phrase. There they crucified him. Four words, each one telling us something. There they crucified him. The place of Calvary, the people of Calvary, the punishment of Calvary, the person of Calvary. There they crucified him. The place, the people, the punishment and the person of Calvary. So first of all, the place Mount Moriah or the Temple Mount or Mount Zion, this area goes by many different names, but it's significant throughout the Bible. For Abraham, God told him to go to the land of Moriah to a mount that I will show you and there you'll sacrifice your son. That area of mountains becomes a very significant place to the Jews because later on that's where the temple is going to be built. Now, it's impossible to know exactly where everything lines up, which Mount Abraham took Isaac up. But I like to think that it was close to where the Lord was crucified. Why? Because as he was about to sacrifice his son, the Lord said, no, take now your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Pause, pause on that phrase there, because when you think about that, Abraham at that time hadn't one but two sons. 
But the one that was recognized, the son of promise, was Isaac. And so God says, take your son, your only son whom you love. And that's significant. That's the very first time in the entire Bible that the word love is mentioned. And so frame this up in your mind. The first time love is mentioned in the Bible, it's about a father sacrificing his only beloved son on Mount Moriah. Now that's really interesting. Later on, David will buy the threshing floor in this area to build the temple. He'll not get to build it. It'll be Solomon that will build it. But fast forward then to the time of the New Testament and the Romans are executing people here outside the city walls. So if you put it all together, Jesus Christ, the only begotten son of the father, is sacrificed in the place where Isaac was almost sacrificed, but God offered a a lamb instead. And it's a place not far from where Solomon built the temple to the Lord. Let me just throw something else at you, and and you can chase it down on your own. Leviticus chapter 1, the Lord gives instructions to the priest about offering sacrifices. They're to take a lamb and offer it. And he says, you'll offer the lamb on the north side of the altar. That's where they're to move around, have their bodies stationed facing the entrance of the holy place. So they were to move towards the north and sacrifice the animal on the northern part of the altar because the tabernacle faces east, so they're to move towards the north. The sacrifice of the lamb was offered on the north part of the altar. So it's interesting when Jesus died, he's dying in an area just north to the Temple Mount at that place called Calvary. Calvary is short for the Latin Calvarium which means the skull, it's the place of the skull. Why does it get that name? A couple of different reasons. Nobody's sure exactly which one. It could simply be where skulls accumulated. It's a place where a lot of people died. If the Romans are executing people there regularly, it could be a place of the skull. It's a place of death. The other suggestion, and there's no need to get dogmatic about all this, but when you look towards the site, when you stare into the rocks, you can almost make out a, a face, the eye sockets and nose, and it kind of looks a wee bit like a skull with a crooked, sort of a toothy smile. And at the foot of the hill, there's this Arab bus station parked right up at Galgortha. And at the top, there's an ancient ceremony. And it's not all that impressive, to be honest, to look at it. And so you might say, well, why is Jesus crucified up there? Well, actually, when you look at it, there's no record at all in the entire scripture that Christ was crucified on top of the hill. Now, I know you might say, well, hold on, Jeff. No, that that's, you just kind of shoot me. You're messing with my head there. I've always believed that this happened on a hill far away, still an old rugged cross. That's what all the Easter cards do. That's what all the pictures, all the paintings all have. You know, you've got these three crosses on top of a sunny hill. But there's no record in the Bible of any of that, of Jesus being crucified on top of the hill. That comes through artists and songwriters and all the rest of it. It doesn't come from the Bible. It's why we need to know the Bible. Otherwise, it's why there's three kings showing up for Jesus' nativity scene instead of just wise men or magi. I believe if this is the place of execution, Jesus is crucified at the base of the hill, not the top of the hill. And here's why, because that's where the main road would be. The Romans did stuff for a display. They wanted people to see those corpses in front of them at the roadside to show them what happens if you mess with the Romans. So in my opinion, that's, that's where it is. And we'll just... Leave it that won't go on. The place of Calvary. But let's go on. There they crucified him. Well, who's they? Who are the they of Calvary? Well, we could spend time talking about the people who put him on the cross. The religious leaders, Pilate, Barabbas, the, the Romans. But there's other characters that Luke wants us to meet and interact with here in these verses. And so let's read Luke 23 from verse 26. As they led Jesus away, it says, a man named Simon, who was from Cyrene, happened to be coming in from the countryside. The soldier seized him and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind 
Jesus. You know where Serene is? Maybe not. It's North Africa, modern day Libya. He's from North Africa. He's a tourist. He's here for Passover. He's part of the Jewish diaspora, the, the scattered Jews around the world. He's come a long, long distance because the hope of every Jew around the world at least once is to celebrate Passover in Jerusalem. This was his year that he's made the big journey. He's there for the feast and suddenly he's conscripted by the Romans to carry the upper part of the cross that, that the victim had to carry. It's called the patibulum. It's about 75 pound crossbeam and he has to carry that for Jesus. This, could have, this would have been the worst thing that could have happened to Simon. By being made to do this, he becomes ritually unclean, unable to take part in the Passover rituals. So what did he make of it all? What did he make of the crowds? What did he make of Jesus in this interaction? I like to think that as he walked with Jesus and lingered at the foot of the cross and watched everything unfold, he began to realise that the blood of Jesus didn't make him unclean, but the blood of Jesus made him clean. I like to think that when he went home and he started to tell people about what happened to him, he didn't talk about carrying Jesus' cross, but how Christ was carrying his cross, how Christ died to take away his sin. And even though the Romans stopped him from sacrificing a lamb at the temple, he saw the Lamb of God laying down his life. I think this because Mark tells us that Simon had two sons, Rufus and Alexander, and they get name-checked in, in Paul's letter to the Romans, uh, which is pretty cool. But Simon wasn't the only person that wants us to see at the cross. In verse 27, we read that a large crowd trailed behind, including many grief-stricken women. Now, who are these women? We don't know. Again, it's another honest answer. We have no idea. We're not told. Some think that they're possibly part of the disciples, the kind of wider group that followed Jesus. Maybe. We're not told. Another possibility is that they were professional mourners. That's part of Jewish society. There was professionals who rallied and, and kind of made a big scene and, and dance about, about uh, whenever someone was dying. Third possibility is that there were women who encountered Jesus who were not quite disciples but were interested. They'd seen him on Palm Sunday. They'd heard him at the temple. Not disciples, but they could have been. But they kind of realised, well, there's something going on here. They woke up on the Friday morning. Hold on. He's been sentenced to death. What's been going on? There's something strange going on. There's something underhand happening here. And they're breaking their hearts. But I would suggest that while Jesus, what Jesus says to them seems very strange, he says it to them in love and compassion. You know, there's not a single record in all of scripture of, of a woman ever being the enemy of the Saviour. There's not one record of all of it in, in biblical history that we can see of a woman plotting or, or, or contriving against Jesus. In fact, most some of the most precious moments in Christ's life were ones that he allowed the woman in his life to be a part of. It was the woman who first heard of him coming into the world, Mary. There was a group of women who were last to leave the scene of the cross. It was women who were the first to see him resurrected at the tomb. So here we see him reaching out. Look, don't worry about the injustice being done to me. Be ready for what's going to come to you. Let's read that. Verse 28, Jesus turned to and said to them, daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For the days are coming when they will say, fortunate indeed are the women who are childless, the wombs that have not born a child and the breasts that have never nursed. That's really strong, isn't it? Verse 30, People will beg the mountains, fall on us and plead with the hills, bury us. For if these things are done when the tree is green, what will, what will happen when it's dry? Now that seems to be a common metaphor or a common proverb. We read it and we go, what on earth is that all about? But obviously they understood it. It, it was, must have been a common proverb for them. 
But if I'm going to venture an interpretation here, here's what I think. If they, the Romans, uh, the unbelieving world, if they can do such a thing to me, Christ, the giver of life, the green twig, imagine what they're going to do when this nation is dying spiritually, when it's ready for judgment. That, I think that's really what it's saying. Now that'll happen 40 years later in AD 70. The Romans will come in, destroy the city, absolutely decimate it. And Jesus, I think, is anticipating that. And he talks about asking the hills to cover it. He says that it's going to be so bad, you're going to wish you never had children. You're going to wish that the mountains are just going to bury you. Interestingly, scripture tells us that in the tribulation period yet to come, people are going to say the same things to the mountains. I do want you to see one more group, though, that are up, is at the cross today, and that's the two people crucified either side of Jesus. I love how Luke just widens the lens uh, to show us that there were other people there that day, that these people are there to represent us, our role in the crucifixion story, whether it's the religious elite, the Romans, Simon, the woman, or these other criminals. They're real people, but they also represent us and how we can be impacted by what Christ is doing for us on the cross. And in doing so, we, we're presented with these two men who react very differently under pressure of coming to terms with their own deaths. Let, let's read their story. Verse 39. One of the criminals hanging beside him scoffed. So you're the Messiah, aren't you? Prove it by saving yourself and us too while you're at it. But the other criminal protested, don't you fear God? Even when you've been sentenced to die, we deserve to die for our crimes. But this man hasn't done anything wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, I assure you, today you'll be with me in paradise. Things no accident that Christ is executed in between them. Both have the same opportunity to hear and to speak to him, to cry out to him. They've had the same chance, but they react very differently to that opportunity. They've had the same life prior to the cross, so we can tell. Both are violent men who seem to be guilty of uh, robbery, homicide. They're not silent cat burglars, but these thieves are violent and aggressive criminals, both guilty, both convicted, both crucified. Which tells me that it's possible for people to come to church to listen to a sermon like this, to hear the same sermon as someone else and have a different reaction completely to that other person. One thief joins in the crowd mocking and, and is angry and is bitter and is lashing out. The other breaks their heart, cries out for forgiveness. Under the pressure of realising that they are both about to die, the differences between these men come to the fore. There's a difference in their demeanour. I've just said that they said different things, but I wonder why would two people from the same background, the same social circle, the same political opinions, the same criminal intent, the same point of death, why would they react differently? It would seem that what you really think about God comes through when you're under pressure. And that's always been the case, hasn't it? How much of you, you really trust in him is revealed when you're under pressure. How much you really are going to worship him is revealed whenever, well, there's no worship services. How much you trust his promises, how much you were unashamed of him, all is revealed whenever we're under pressure. And in this extreme case, one man is able to see that he's a sinful man deserving of punishment. The other doesn't seem to have cared unless he seems to be resigned. Now, even that describes so many people that we know, right? We could put them into one of two categories. They either recognise the reality of sin in their lives or they don't. Whether they're under pressure or not, we can see them filling into one of those two categories. See, the second thief doesn't get sucked in by the goading. Why don't you get off your cross and do something about the suffering? Well, no, this one is sort of thinking, Jesus is doing something for my suffering here. By staying on the cross, he's actually doing something for my suffering. This other guy said, no, you get off your cross and you do something to help me. You, you start doing something practical, Jesus. 
This hard guy goes, no, no, no. He's doing the best thing he could for me. He's dying for my sin. I think this whole argument about why isn't Jesus doing something it can be a lazy argument sometimes, but it does have a very real power to that. To it. If God is so good and so loving, why are people dying of coronavirus? If God is so good, why are people starving around the world? If God is so good, then why does he really care if my family's been torn apart? There's real power to those questions. So what's the answer to them? Because if the theory is that God should just swoop in every single time and do something, change the outcome every single time, well, what happens then is people don't try, people don't think, people don't care because we say, well, sure, if I mess up, thank God I'll fix it, it'll be fine. And instead of being a sovereign king who we serve, God becomes someone who serves us. That's the wrong order. It can't be like that. But what if we could do something different? Would it not be a better solution that instead of God having to come in and swoop in every single time we mess up, what if he swoops in the once? What if he steps out of heaven the once and makes it possible to change the people instead of changing the people's circumstances? all the time think about it, that he would be able to change the people who hoard up food and toilet paper so that a world would have enough in times of crisis and times of shortages so that people would get paid fairly for the food that they grow and for the services that they provide that he would change people so that they can take charge of the scenarios and think of others before themselves so that they don't want just drugs or alcohol or, or addictions to kind of satisfy them or just to make a few extra pounds. But actually the person inside is changed. The desires are changed. That God would step in and change people so that they would love and cherish their, their spouse, their husband, their wife. That they would be devoted parents. That families would stay together. Wouldn't it be a better solution if God was more interested in changing people than just changing our circumstances whenever we mess up? But that's what was achieved at the cross. Two thieves. Two decisions. One rejects him because he can't understand why Jesus would just hang there when all these bad things are happening to him. One accepts Christ because he understands that because all these things are happening to him, Jesus had to hang on the cross. There's a difference in their demeanour, a difference in their decisions, and there's a difference in their destinies. What could that thief do other than just plead for forgiveness? He had no time to fix up his life, no time to make amends, no time to learn theology, no time to get baptised or take communion. All he had was a promise from Christ. Today you'll be with me in paradise. Isn't that funny how a man so broken still gets more than he could ever have imagined with Christ? He asked, look, just remember me. Jesus says, no, today you'll be with me. There, they crucified him. There, the place, Calvary. They, the people, Simon, the women, the thieves, they all reveal a little of ourselves as we consider Christ crucified. Well, there they crucified. Here's the punishment of Calvary. It's fascinating that the gospel writers, while informing us of the beatings, they don't really go into a lot of detail. There's been books and books and books all exploring the physical nature of crucifixion and the agony that Christ would have physically suffered. Notice, though, that the Gospels don't seem that interested in, in recording that. Now, it could be that they didn't feel that they had to explain that crucifixion is a painful thing. The people that they were writing to understood crucifixion is bad. It's painful. It's not pretty. Well, maybe that wasn't really the focal point. Listen to Luke 
um, describe Christ's time on the cross. And he spends more time telling us about the people around the cross. Listen to verse 44. By the time that it was noon and darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. Now, when Jesus was born, the sky was lit with the glory of God. Angels came and the hosts sang uh, to the shepherds. The glory of the Lord shone around them. When Jesus died, it's darkness. It's very different from his birth. Why, why the darkness? Well, first of all, it was a darkness of secrecy. Jesus lived out in public. He had this uh, public ministry for three years. But this ministry for three hours was private. The transaction between heaven and earth was done privately behind closed doors. Just Jesus and the Father making that holy transaction. Second of all, it was a darkness of wickedness. They're trying to extinguish the light of the world and so it grew dark as they snuffed out the light. Third, I would suggest that it's a darkness of judgment. So often that we read in the Bible, don't we? The ninth plague of Egypt was a plague of darkness for three days in the land. According to the Jewish Talmud, darkness is a judgment reserved by God for uh, an unusual and a particular wickedness. So these Jewish scholars, knowing what this was, this darkness was saturated with meaning. A darkness of secrecy, of wickedness, of judgment. Verse 45 says that the light from the sun was gone and suddenly the curtain of the sanctuary of the temple was torn down the middle. Then Jesus shouted, Father, I entrust my spirit into your hands. And with those words, he breathed his last. Tells us that the veil of the temple was torn in two. I want to move through this quickly, but the veil is about 60 feet tall, 30 feet wide. It's the thickness of a man's palm. Another gospel tells us that it was ripped from top to bottom, not bottom to top. No man could reach up there to rip it. It'd take 300 priests to hang it. So it was torn from top to bottom. God's making a statement in this, that the statement is up to this point, you had to go through the priests. You had to go through the mediators. You had to go through a system. But the message would always been, keep out, stay away. I'm too holy for you. You can't come to me. There's courts of Gentiles, courts of women, courts of men. If you're a woman, you can't go into the court of men. If you're in the Gentile, you can't go into the court of women. The message constantly was, you can't come closer to me. But when Jesus died, he paid the price for our sins. God ripped that veil. He ripped that barrier away. What's he saying now? Come in. Come. Come. Don't stay away anymore. Now you can come no matter who you are. Amen. You can come all the way into the holy presence of who I am all may come for Christ now has made a way now on your own you don't have to do it now but read Hebrews 10 all right verses 19 to 22 we'll apply all that and Jesus cried out verse 46 with a loud voice that's the seventh saying on the cross father into your hands I commit my spirit and he breathed his last I commit myself into your hands think about what that means for the last 12 hours, he's been in the hands of sinners. He's been in the hands of his enemies, the hands of people who were malicious and, and evil towards him. Jesus has said the Son of Man would be betrayed into sinful hands. Those hands abused him. They beat him. They put a crown of thorns on him. They nailed him to a cross. That's what happens when Jesus is in human hands. But now that's over. Father, I'm coming home. I commit myself into your spirit. Three days later, he'll rise from the dead. Four days after, he'll ascend through the right hand of the throne of glory. There they crucified him. The place, the people, the punishment, 
Finally, the person of Calvary. There they crucified who? Him? Him who? The Passover lamb. The lamb of God who will take away the sins. We'll remember back the Christmas story, what Mary was told by Gabriel. You'll call his name Jesus, for he'll save his people from their sin. Luke has been highlighting throughout this entire chapter that the man who was being crucified was innocent, sinless. He's tracked that through from the trials process uh, and highlighting Pilate in particular verse 22 of the chapter reads uh, for the third time Pilate said why I can find no guilt in him deserving of death back to verse 47 it will tell us that the centurion overseeing the cruelty of the day overseeing this whole facade who will have seen his fair men of guilty men die by this stage says no surely this man was innocent on the other insight Luke gives us of a person on the cross, it's an inscription. Verse 38 says that a sign was fastened above him with these words, this is the King of the Jews. Matthew, Mark, Luke and John all tell us about an inscription at the cross. Now it's funny because you've got to love the sceptics because sceptics come along and say, well you see, there's, this is the problem with the Bible because none of the writers agree. They all write down what was on the sign and they all write down different things. Well, it can't possibly be true then. So Luke says, this is the king of the Jews, but that's not what Matthew says. Matthew says, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. But Mark has something different. Mark simply has the king of the Jews. And then John has something different again. He says, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. And so skeptics will come along and say, well, I mean, you can't trust them. These guys, if they were there, they can't even get it right. They can't even write something down. And that's laziness in terms of scholarship because it actually lends authenticity to scripture when you've got four different camera angles on a thing and you've got four different things that builds the authenticity of it what did the sign really say well in different languages you put it together and it says this is jesus of nazareth the king of the jews so who is the person of the cross simon tells me that he's the innocent one who bore my cross the woman tell me that he's the one who reached out in compassion to the vulnerable in the society. The sign tells me that he's the Passover lamb. He's the king of the Jews who stood to serve. The temple tells me that he's the temple curtain ripper who grants access to the holiness of God. He is the way, the truth and the life. The dying thief tells me that he's the one who's willing to forgive and love a sinner as guilty as I am. He can't make it right. Who's dying on the cross. Scripture will unite to tell us that he is the one who died for me. He's the one who died for you. There they crucified him. The place, the people, the punishment and the person of Calvary. You know, our only hope is the man who died on a cross between two criminals. Now you think about that. You take your average person from Northern Ireland with a nice job, a nice house, a nice car, has a nice holiday plan with his nice family, take his wife, nice free thinking woman who values her independence and her equality and you take them both and you dump them uh, in the city dump just out of sight of civilized society you show this nice man a nice woman a cross and on it there's a naked beaten refugee dying on that cross for crimes committed guilty against our society and you say to that nice couple that unless you believe that this man is your god you accept him as your savior as your judge you'll have no hope in this life or the next that eternity is going to be determined by your response to this refugee on the cross. 
that nice man, that nice woman will laugh. They'll roll their eyes. At best, they'll feel sorry for the man on the cross. Yes, impacted by his suffering, but they'll not bow the knee. That would be too crazy for them. So what about you? What do you make of the crucified Christ? But before you decide, just remember the story's not over yet. There's more to come. Death cannot defeat him. The grave couldn't hold him. And three days later, he will rise again victorious. Amen. Folks, uh, hopefully uh, this will be out uh, on, on Good Friday. At this, It's Thursday night currently. Uh, I'm filming this. Uh, it'll be up uh, nice early for you tomorrow morning. Tomorrow night, hopefully I'll have a communion service up and ready for you as well uh, as we go into Good Friday evening. Uh, Saturday, I'll try and get a kids talk up for, for, for the young ones in the church. And then we'll have our, our Easter Sunday service in the morning as well. I miss you all. I hope you are doing okay in quarantine or in self-isolation or whatever it is that you're doing. Uh, shout out to all the nurses and to the people who are making things happen. For those who are driving ambulances and are in the paramedic side of things, for those who are uh, just on the wards, for those who are in the shops and they're working and they're serving people, delivering things and doing all sorts. Um, we're praying for you. Keep going. Uh, as a church, we are so proud of you for, for doing what you're doing. Be safe. Look after yourselves. And know that we're praying for you. God bless you.